This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 18th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, newswriter Elizabeth Panisi discusses the surprising role that hybridization between different species has played in the evolutionary tree with Alexa Billow. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and its members. Find AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.com. Org. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. First up, we have a story on why it makes sense for taxis to be choosy. Catherine, I don't think this has ever happened to me. I tell a cab driver my destination and they just say, no, I can't go there. Has this happened to you either here in D.C. or in China? When I first heard about this story, I could totally relate. In D.C., I've got it pretty good. I'm right on a major route that a lot of cabbies used to get home. But in Beijing, where I lived for a couple of years, I was floored when one cabbie drove off immediately after I told him my destination. The next guy to come along luckily was sympathetic, and he explained to me why some drivers won't go to some places. It was basically an abstract for this new paper. This paper says they're not being evil when a cab driver doesn't take you where you want to go or an Uber driver suddenly cancels your trip. The researchers found that this is actually efficient for them. How did researchers figure this out in a scientific way? Two researchers based in China were able to nab about two months worth of data from 12,000 Beijing taxi drivers. The data didn't give information about refused rides. But it did show for every single driver where they pick people up and where they drop them off. And from that, they were able to see two kinds of bias. One, that cabs all go to the same place to pick people up. So they're hanging around hotel areas. They're hanging around the airport. And they also see a bias in the drop-off areas. How big was this bias? So, you know, they're basically only dropping people off at places that are going to pay off with a new fare right away. So the researchers found a subset of drivers who consistently avoided picking up or dropping off people in remote locations. To find out just how profitable this trip ditching was, 
The researchers calculated how much money each driver would have gotten for each trip using standard fare rates. Sure enough, some drivers were making far more money for their labor. The top 25% of drivers earned about $80 per day on average. May not sound like a lot, but that's far higher than the average Beijing resident at the time. At the same time, the bottom 25% made just $8. When scientists compared the trips of the high earners with those of the lower earners, they found that the low earners weren't sticking to trips between major pickup areas. It turns out that their trips to remote places, no matter how long the drive, paid less over the course of the day because they wasted so much time getting back to the dense areas. The scientists estimated that Beijing taxi drivers who made the most money avoided about one in every 12 passengers. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I guess that's better, you know, better odds for the passengers, but still not great. And they also estimated that the profit per rejected passenger was roughly 75 cents. Okay. This makes sense monetarily for the drivers. What about me? Will I ever get an Uber to come pick me up in the countryside? The distance profit motive is, of course, still going to be a play with services like Uber and Lyft. But because those drivers can be penalized by their company for each ride they refuse, they're less likely to be as cutthroat as our drivers in Beijing. Next up, we have a story on the rise of skeletons. Um, that's how this story was listed on the lineup, the rise of skeletons, which really called out to me with its creepy undertones there. But it's actually published online with the headline, How Did Animals Get Their Skeletons? Which I guess makes a lot more sense on first read. My take on this headline was, when did bones become a thing? <laughs> why, why aren't you writing our headline, Sarah? <laughs> anyway, when were animals skeleton-free, Catherine? Earth's oldest complex organisms date back to about 570 million years ago. The only fossil evidence we have comes from strange impressions of the soft-bodied creatures, bizarre multi-armed spirals, and mysterious corkscrew-shaped tubes that frankly defy classification. Then, around 550 million years ago, those skeletons rose up. <laughs> so the study we're going to talk about today purports to get at why skeletons came about. What clues do we have about why bones suddenly came into fashion? Shortly before we see skeletons emerging in the fossil record, atmospheric oxygen levels shot up. When that happened, the composition of minerals in the ocean underwent a transformation. Previously, the seas were rich in the mineral dolomite, which is really hard for organisms to capture and use for shell building and skeleton building. But around 545 million years ago, that chemistry started to shift. As levels of atmospheric oxygen increased, limestone took over. It contained high levels of aragonite and calcite, minerals that animals need to build strong bones. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, on land, intense wind and rainstorms stripped the earth of calcium, an essential ingredient for those building blocks, and dumped it into the sea. So suddenly, the ocean was brewing with these bone-building pieces. And that's where the study comes in. What did they find here that helped them to understand this link between oxygen, calcium, and bones? The new study looked at layers of sediment left over from these ancient oceans and found that dolomite, that first mineral I was telling you about, lost its dominance around 545 million years ago. 
They also saw very clearly when the limestone, full of its bone-building materials, took over. Now, the key is to see if this pattern, which is observed in Siberia, repeats itself in other parts of the world. Lastly, we have a story on an iron age for vaccines. This is about new vaccines that work on infectious bacteria's love for iron. Iron's a hot commodity for us and for them. That's right. The metal is essential for producing energy and replicating DNA. It has a starring role in hemoglobin, which you may have heard is the protein that carries oxygen inside our red blood cells. Bacteria also need iron to grow and divide. And they have special molecules called siderophores that bind to the metal and rip it straight out of proteins like hemoglobin. These iron snatchers then ferry their precious cargo back to the bacterial cell by binding to a specialized receptor. So they're kind of like pirates of the bloodstream. (laughs) So the idea then is to target some part of this iron snatching mechanism to hurt the bacteria. Scientists have tried to do it in the bacteria before by attacking the receptors. But this hasn't worked well since the receptors repel water and they're insoluble, which makes it really hard to make a vaccine out of them. A new approach is to target the iron snatchers themselves, the siderophores. The problem is that the siderophores are so small, they aren't really good at alerting the body's immune system. To make them more visible, to B cells and other immune responders, scientists have created their own artificial siderophores, linking them to large proteins that the immune system views as foreign. They're now trying to turn these compounds into vaccines. Hmm. And at this point, it kind of works. We're at the proof-of-concept stage with mice, right? That's right. But the early results look promising. In one experiment, the new vaccines reduced salmonella bacteria by about 20,000 times and E. coli by 10 times in mice. But the siderophore shots didn't prevent disease. Vaccinated mice still developed infections, many of which were severe. The good news is that the experiment, which some scientists have called a long shot, is actually starting to pay off. Scientists have also been able to identify antibodies specific to the siderophores that seem responsible for the protection. Okay. In these experiments, they first vaccinated and then infected the mice with bacteria. Is that how this treatment would be used in the real world? I don't actually know whether they'd be administered before or after an infection, but they could one day be used as an alternative to many antibiotics. All right, did you bring me a quiz question? I tried to pick a pretty open-ended one, so (laughs) hopefully you can come up with a creative, if not correct, answer. So my question for you this week, Sarah, is why did the Vikings travel to Greenland? This is like a did they get to the other side of the road type question. Well, that that could be your joke answer, sure. Um, I mean, food? Is that why we go places? Uh, You'd think so, right? Can I have the options, please? Okay. All right. So answer number one, farming. Answer number two, mining. Answer number three, ivory trading. And answer number four, draft dodging. Okay. Okay. So I've seen the cover of Science, and it's related to this article, and it's a picture of a house, which is no clue at all. So I'm going to go with farming. I'm just going to go with farming because my first instinct was food. All right. Do you want want me to tell you the answer? Yeah. yeah. So you uh, have answered in the way that scientists have for the last 
at least several hundred years. For a long time, researchers thought that the reason the Greenland Norse, as they're now called, traveled to Greenland was because, you know, they were farmers, they were in search of more land, you know, Mm -hmm. better pastures. And indeed, they brought a lot of farm animals along with them. So you can see their remains even today. It's pretty cool. But recent research has suggested that instead of coming for the farming, that was just sort of a side effect of them being there. But the real reason, in fact, was the ivory trade. Walruses. Walruses are big in that area. And at the time, Europe didn't have the trading route set up to parts of Asia and Africa that brought in mass quantities of ivory in later years. And so at the time, it was actually a really precious commodity. Now there are more and more sites in Greenland that are showing evidence that not only were these Vikings there for hunting, but they were really, really good at it. Huh. Really? That's cool, your Catherine. that's your answer. I'll give you a half point with that because you know, <laughs> you you are you are agreeing with what was the dominant paradigm. All right. Well, so what else is on the site this week? We have a story on how West Nile virus may be far deadlier than thought, and another on how European diseases left a genetic mark on Native Americans. On Science Insider, our policy blog we have a full rundown of what the American presidential election could mean for science, from how agencies are dealing with the transition to what it could mean for climate change. So be sure to check out all that and the quiz on our site. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. species is defined as a group of organisms that can interbreed to produce viable and fertile offspring. So says the biological species concept, a long-held tenet of evolutionary biology. If two organisms can produce offspring, they belong to the same species. Simple as that. Except that research is showing that evolution isn't nearly as neat and cooperative as we'd like to think, and organisms from supposedly different species form hybrids that can swap genetic material all the time. I'm Alexa Billow, and here to talk to me about the role of hybridization in evolution is Elizabeth Panisi. Liz, welcome. Thank you. How did this idea of two species not being able to breed with each other sort of become so established? Well, the idea was tossed around for centuries, but really took hold in the mid-1900s. A group of biologists led by Ernst Meyer at Harvard started talking about how One of the mechanisms for isolating species is this idea that if there were two populations of separating organisms mating, their young would be infertile or inviable. Out of that grew this idea that a species is a reproductively isolated population. When you cross a horse and a donkey, you get a mule, which is a hybrid, and that's supposed to be a dead end. Except in many cases with other animals, it's actually not. How often is hybridization happening in the animal world? What barriers are we seeing being broken down? So what's happening is we're beginning to realize that these barriers have never been that solid to begin with. One of the things that's happening is we've come up with a method for figuring out how much of another species' DNA is in a given species, and they're finding it everywhere. So there were early estimates, for example, in the 1990s when people didn't have this technique, 
that birds, about 10% of bird species hybridize. Among ducks, for example, it was half the ducks would hybridize with other duck species. So many ducks. So many ducks. But it wasn't really quantified many other places. But now genome sequencing is much cheaper. And so researchers are looking at the genomes of what they thought were closely related species and finding bits of one genome in genomes of another, showing that hybridization happens a lot. In your article, you describe the tree of life as being more like a net. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? Why is a net different from a tree? So if you think about the tree of life, it consists of branches that bifurcate. In other words, you have an ancestral species and it splits. A new one branches off from that old one and it goes its separate way. And then another one, maybe that branch splits and you get another species. What they discovered 15 years ago in microbes is that It's not that clear anymore because so many microbes swap genes with so many other microbes that instead of having discrete branches, you have branches that come together, go to a lot of different places, so it looks a lot more bushy. And they're finding the similar things are happening among plants and animals. So one of the most interesting examples you give in your piece is of Darwin's finches. So Darwin sees finches and says, aha, this finch needs a bigger beak for this food, and this other finch needs a smaller beak for this food. Therefore, they separate, and never again shall the twain meet. But that's not what's happening, ironically. What is happening with the finches? So with the finches, you get hybridization throughout that whole group, this between 14 and 18 different species, and most of them have hybridized at least once in their history. You said something about the gene for beak size specifically that was one of Darwin's key observations, that they're actually trading this back and forth a little bit. What we've realized is that as environmental conditions change, different kinds of seeds are available to the birds. And sometimes hybrids are better able to take advantage of the seeds that are there that particular year or that particular decade. So you get this fluctuation in how many hybrids are surviving and what kinds of birds predominate. Sometimes it's those with big beaks, sometimes it's those with little beaks, sometimes it's those with intermediate beaks. And by hybridizing all these different finches, have a little bit more fluidity and a little bit more ability to respond to what the environmental conditions create. Is it time to completely throw out this definition of a species by reproductive isolation? Are there alternative definitions of what a species is kicking around? I would say there's a lot of debate about what a species actually is. There has been since the idea of species first came about. I think most people still think that reproductive isolation is part of the definition, but it does not have to be complete reproductive isolation to qualify as a species. And instead, you look at the behavior, the morphology, where the animal lives, all sorts of things. And if you think about it, that makes sense because in order to say two species hybridize, you have to have thought them as being different species in the first place. I think people still think, yes, we have species. It's just that we can't say they're completely reproductive isolated yet anymore. It's one thing to simply accept that species 
don't conform to strict boundaries like, okay, species are more fluid than we thought. Great. But in the article, you touch on at least one important use for the biological species concept, which is conservation. How does defining discrete species help us to preserve them? Well, I think our legal system requires that we know what we want to protect. And so when we have a defined species, then we know we want to protect them. So a good example are polar bears, which are protected species. But as their habitat changes, they're moving farther south, and they're hybridizing more with brown bears. And the question becomes, when you have a hybrid, is that protected? And right now, under our law, it is not. It's hard to make the call. Is a is a growler bear a polar bear or a brown bear? Well, it's both and neither, but... Right. It's very challenging. Turns out species are much more flexible than we thought, and the law is not really that flexible. Liz, thanks so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you. Elizabeth Panisi writes about hybridization and evolution in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.